Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching Wabash Center's podcast series. I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Paul Myrie, Senior Associate Director, is in the Sound Engineers booth. It is my pleasure to welcome to the conversation today my friend and my colleague, Dr. Rachel E. Harding. Dr. Harding is Associate Professor of Indigenous Spiritual Traditions at the Department of Ethnic Studies, University Colorado in Denver. Welcome, Dr. Harding, to the conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Westfield. It's good to be here with you. So you and I, I, I have had the pleasure of uh, co-teaching with you as well as witnessing your teaching, right, over the years. Um, seeing you present papers, knowing a little bit about your scholarly trajectory. That being, and I know um, relevance is a part of, is baked into your scholarship. Relevance is baked into how you approach your scholarship. We are living as teachers and professors in a moment where uh, just in the United States, I'm not even talking about around the globe, just in the United States, event after event after event is happening. Mm. How do you, what does it mean regardless of what discipline you're teaching or even what course you're teaching? Help us think through how do you make sense of and decide what events to bring into the classroom because we know students are yearning for reflection on their own lives, because that's what students do, right? That's, that's what students, students, students want to make sense and make meaning out of what is before them. Help us, help us think through that a little bit. Well, um, I absolutely agree that we are um, in a particularly challenging moment. Although I would say that, um, for people who are trying to look um, critically and with imagination and with heart at the uh, issues of the modern world, we have been in this um, moment for, for many generations. Um, but, but yes, I agree that, that given the, the nature of um, of what's been happening in our society over the past, uh, particularly over the past four and a half, five years, but um, in some ways, you know, since the turn of this century, there's a lot, there's a lot that people are dealing with. And it's interesting that you asked me this question because um, I've, I'm asking myself actually today, the same question, um, I'm teaching like most of us online this semester. Um, but most of my classes are asynchronous. So actually all of my classes are, are asynchronous this semester. So students kind of come in to the platform um, when they are able, um, engage with each other um, in their own time and on their own schedule. However, uh, one of the things that I've done this semester is create um, uh, several opportunities for us to gather together as, as many of us as possible as, you know, as people's schedules um, allow for us to be, you know, on, on Zoom at the same time. And one of the reasons that I'm doing that is because um, whether the classes are online or in person, I, um, one of the priorities for me 
is to use that space as a space um, of community building to the extent possible um, in, in the context of the class. I teach uh, ethnic studies courses a, a variety of, of things within the discipline, including African-American history, introduction to ethnic studies, indigenous studies, um, African-American literature, um, Afro-Atlantic, religions, African diaspora. So a lot of subjects that inherently um, carry um, experiences of both um, significant trauma and significant space um, of imagination, the necessity of imagination. Um, so, uh, and I see my part of my responsibility as a teacher, and I, I really have to um, acknowledge and thank my parents for this, but I think part of, of the role, or at least my role, I won't speak for all teachers, um, is to help our students look for and find ways to, to both celebrate the strengths and the potentials and the possibilities of our nation as a multiracial democracy, as a healthy multiracial democracy. And um, at the same time to be very clear about um, what is damaged, what needs healing, what is, um, um, putrid in the American experience. So, um, so at one level, you know, I would say that just because of the nature of the kinds of things that I teach and the way that I teach, I have some experience with this question that you asked, but um, also like everybody else in this um, COVID-19 moment um, and this moment of multiple pandemics um, as a number of people have have indicated or at least the the um, the manifest the manifesting um, um, open manifesting of these pandemics uh, many of which have been present for a long time you know I'm in the midst of it too just like my students and I'm finding uh, I, I, I always find kind of by the middle of the semester and certainly by the end, <clears throat> even as I try to build in um, elements of, of, um, of affirmation, elements of rest, elements of encouragement into the classes, even in other semesters, I find that uh, certainly by the last third of semester, I'm knocked out. And I think that that's true, you know, kind of for, for most of us who teach, it's just the nature of the kind of energy that we give to the work. But I have found um, that I'm feeling that much earlier in the semester now. And so, um, and I kind of anticipated it because um, that happened last semester. And so I have been, um, building in, as I said, this, these opportunities for us to just kind of check in with each other, even though it's a uh, 
primarily asynchronous class, um, these opportunities for them to really just talk about what they're feeling. And, um, you know, it, again, given the nature of what I teach, it's not hard to connect almost anything that they're feeling and that's happening in the society with uh, the subject matter of our course. But it's also, as you said, um, Dr. Westfield, just an opportunity for, for them to, to begin to process together what it means to be a human being in this society at this time. Um, so there's some of that that, that I, I bring in. I also am so happy about this. Last semester, I started including um, um, yoga as um, a essential element of the class and providing time for that and um, making sure that, that it's not competing with other um, assignments. Um, and giving students opportunity to learn how to more, um, maybe more, more usefully um, pass these experiences, these feelings, these, these, um, these intellectual engagements through their body in a way that doesn't harm them as much. Um, so we do breathing, we do um, gentle movement um, exercises. Uh, so, you know, those are some of the kinds of, of alternative things that I hadn't done before, you know, the more intentional gatherings and then providing um, um, time for for meditation, reflection, and yoga in the context of the class. Um, but in terms of, uh, and then I'll be quiet because I'm, I'm sure there are other kinds of questions that you have too, but also um, just in terms of, of choices about <clears throat> material that I use in the class and what kinds of, of um, events and so, I would say in all of, in everything that I teach, as, as I said at the outset, you know, I, I have um, what I think is a kind of balance. And at this point, I don't, I don't even think about it consciously. I think it's just the nature of the kinds of, you know, it's kind of my pedagogical choices are what they are at this point. So they are often, as I said, this combination of, of um, often historical, um, information, but many times tied to contemporary uh, experience um, that that doesn't shy from the the difficult and the traumatic because that's uh, the nature, particularly of the experience of people of African descent in this country and in uh, the diaspora, and at the same time, um, my my effort is always to emphasize the, the, the liberative, the imaginative, the inclusive, the transformative energy, spirit, impulse um, that has always existed alongside the trauma, 
which is why we're still here after 400 years. So um, um, yeah, so I think in general, my, my effort is to bring that balance so that um, students understand that we need not be paralyzed by, um, by the challenges and um, that we have ancestors in the work of imagining and creating and living in another meaning of, of the human in, um, in this society that, um, that it has not yet fully reached the potential is not close yet <laughs> to what it what it can be for for all of us. You know, I'm I, I get so excited sometimes when I think about what's possible for us here in the United States with the the richness um, of the ancestral traditions of everybody who's here and the and the intellectual brilliance and the creative. Uh, genius of everybody who's here and how we only access such a small bit of that, you know, um, because, well, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is that the policies, the public policies of this country make it very hard for us to be human to each other. Um, so anyway, those are some of the kinds of things that are on my mind as I think about pedagogy as I think about how to construct a class. And as I said, in general, you know, that's kind of the way I do it anyway. But now I'm just, uh, I, I have both personally, and I think we have as a society have a heightened sense of the need to balance the, um, the trauma with the imagination and the memory and the recognition of who we really can be to each other in the country. Mm -hmm. So I, I hear you taking the more difficult path of um, approaching your students holistically. Okay. Approaching your students in classroom settings as teacher who recognizes that they are beings with souls. So not just minds or not just brains or not the siloing or slivering of, um, this is a one-off event in history, let's tackle this event. So the first thing you called us to is, is connecting that this is not, these are not one-off events, right? The pandemic did not just come from nowhere, right? That we need to look at the last 10 years, the last 50 years, the last 100 years, the last 150 years, as if, we, as if we're not just, ahistoric, right. right? So that was the first piece that you gave us. Um, so connecting, so we're not teaching one-off events. And as well as when we think about things that we, that we think in multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, because that's how people think. That's how meaning is made, not in siloed disciplines, right? You can train someone to play one instrument, but most people can play more than one instrument, you know, even at a time. And to, to ask a faculty person, to ask a teacher, to ask a school to approach learners 
and faculty people as if this is a gathering, a community of souls coming together mm. is a different approach to teaching. Mm. That's what I hear you recognizing in terms of our humanness, mm -hmm. right? And, and doing the politics of race, the politics of body, but transcending the politics of race and body and identity to say, we are souls gathered here together and we must recognize this human, this holiness mm -hmm. in our humanness. Yes. We must recognize that we do not travel alone that there are ancestors and babies yet to be born that are a part of the cloud of witnesses that are in our classrooms synchronously or asynchronously when we gather for these important conversations. And that our work, the, the conversation, the work itself mm. is participation in our own imagination and healing. So the, the notion of um, inviting and modeling for our students healing, imagination, uh, connection to past, present, and future is to me a gracious thing. You know what I mean? So, so when we think about teaching practices, I, I don't often hear people talking about graciousness as a teaching practice. <laughs> right? So if, if we were to cultivate for ourselves as teachers, who, as you say, are in the same mess as our students are in. We're not separated from the mess. <laughs> Somehow a tour guide in the mess. <laughs> uh, we're not objective to the mess. <laughs> we tired too. They tired, we tired. Yes. Yes. They're grieving and have lost. We're grieving and have lost, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They're afraid and we're afraid. We're not exempt from, or, or the scholarly, teacherly, positions don't give us the luxury of pretending like we're right. unaffected. Not at all. Not at right. all. So when, when we have the ability to show our own humanness mm -hmm. in these conversations, that calls our own students to a different way of being and a different way of treating us as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, um, <clears throat> I, I agree with everything that you just, uh, shared and, and your comment about the graciousness um, just struck me so beautifully because it reminds me, it reminds me of my mother. Um, you know, when I think about the way um, she taught um, just in, you know, her daily life as, um, as a mom, as a family member, as a community member, but also very specifically, as she taught uh, classes, you know, um, in college and university settings, and and I imagine uh, when she started out as um, a second and third grade teacher, I wasn't born then, but you know, her her teaching career started in primary school. But there's so much about her her manner and method, and I I know that she's not unique in this. I think there's when I think about it. Um, there's a wonderful um, professor, I don't know where she's, she's located, a scholar whose work um, I've used a few times in courses. Her name is Tamara Boboff Lafontante, and she's a womanist educator. And she's written about um, um, exemplary Black women teachers and the kinds of 
of characteristics that they bring to their work. Um, and as I read, um, um, the first time I read one of her essays, I just was struck by how much the description reminded me of my mom and of a number of other uh, Black women teachers and um, principals at the um, segregated schools that I grew up in, in within in Atlanta in the in the 60s. And there's something about again that combination. What one of the things that I remember particularly from Bobeuf Lafontant's analysis of these women is the way that they, um, and this comes out of the, the, the history and the, the, the functioning of the African-American community um, historically in, in this country, that children or young people or students are not shielded from the, um, from, from the fact of injustice in the world. But at the same time, they are um, helped to see that they are part of a larger community of people who are working for the transformation of this society. So you're not by yourself, but you're also um, not to act as if this horrific stuff is not real, you know, it's real. but we have each other. We have a tremendous history of ancestors, um, many of whom, uh, unless, unless you study this history, we don't even know the multitudes of people who have had another vision of what the country could be and how much many people of all uh, races and genders and, and ethnicities have sacrificed to try to, to live um, um, with, with more of a sense of, of wholeness. And, and you know, how much um, um, the, um, the, the state has put tremendous energy into squashing that and squashing our um, recognition of that history and, and the power of it. So uh, anyway, I'm going in some different directions, but, but the key that I wanted to, to say was just an acknowledgement of that, that element of graciousness. Um, that means a lot to me, and I, I'm glad to hear you describe it that way. I think we need more of that grace among uh, ourselves, you know, we need to take care of each other uh, more and to do it, you know, to understand that taking care of each other means, um, um, you know, really teaching you know, and really learning and really being, being um, able to hear and to receive the criticism that helps us see more clearly. Um, and it also means always reminding each other that we are not alone. We are not alone in this work. Um, and that the best that can come for, for us, for us as scholars, for our teachers, for, I mean, for our students who are all, also often our teachers, um, uh, for our communities, that, that, that when we 
are able to um, to really engage together, you know, to draw on on the on the on the the richnesses, on the the capabilities that exist among us as a community, as a collective. It's amazing. I mean, anybody who teaches will tell you this, you know, what, what comes when there is space in the room, um, the kinds of insights and the kinds of connections that students are, are capable of making. Um, it's exciting. I mean, that's one of, the, I think, the, the most beautiful things about the profession of teaching. Um, so Rachel, in your teaching in your classrooms, I know that you um, are aware of and you teach from the perspective that indigenous ways of knowing um, multiple, multiple epistemologies benefit and are accepted by white students, which is oftentimes a non sequitur. People think, okay, if you're white, you don't want to be about um, indigenous ways of knowing, or you can't be about those ways of knowing. Help us understand how, because you teach the opposite, how indigenous ways of knowing are not only beneficial to white students and our white colleagues and white brothers and sisters, but embraced in some respects by them. Yeah. Two things. My, my day job, um, you know, the, the bulk of my day-to-day -day teaching is at the University of Colorado, Denver, which is on um, the campus that is the most diverse out of all of the, you know, colleges and university campuses in the state of Colorado, which, you know, is not saying a lot in comparison to some other places, but for, um, for our state, there are lots of, um, of, um, first-generation students who either themselves have immigrated or whose parents immigrated from Asia, from Africa, from uh, Latin America. And um, I find, so, so they are at this point probably 50% of the student population, maybe a little bit more. Um, what I find is that those students um, recognize pretty easily, pretty quickly, these kinds of values, these kinds of traditions that I'm talking about because they um, have seen them, you know, in their own families and communities. And what I find helpful um, for the white students is that they start to want to look for that. Um, I think just the fact that I center this kind of thinking and you know, everything that we read, well, not everything, but a lot of what we read, a lot of the films, a lot of our conversation kind of are, um, uh, encourage students to look in these directions for, for, um, for, for, for forms of knowledge that we can apply to what we're studying. Um, because I make that the, the model, um, it helps other students who, who may be less familiar with it, but who I think, you know, um, it's something inside all of us, you know, as human beings. So it makes them curious. You know, for example, I had um, 
in my introduction to ethnic studies course, um, I taught uh, you know, I taught it in the fall of last year. Yeah. Um, and so right around um, Columbus Day, we were talking, you know, not only about, you know, Christopher Columbus and then the, the efforts of a number of um, communities around the country to transform Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. But we also talked about um, <clears throat> the history of where Columbus Day comes from in this country. And <clears throat> the, excuse me, the fact that it was created at least in part as a response to the murders of some Italian uh, immigrants um, in Louisiana who had made who, who had made common cause with African Americans who, um, you know, partly by virtue of the fact that you know, as um, many people know, and some of my students, of course, didn't, that Italian Americans, uh, like a lot of white folks, uh, when they first got here to this country, were not considered white. And particularly um, in, in, um, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, um, initially were segregated and had to, the, the spaces that were open to them were spaces where black people lived and worked. Um, and so um, at the, the there, there are a number of, of Italian American immigrant men uh, were actually lynched. And in part as a result of the, the uh, furor that developed in Italy and the tensions between US and Italian um, relations um, the U.S. government decided to create this, um, this day to recognize um, an Italian hero um, to kind of help smooth things over. But those um, Italians were, were um, experienced that violence in that way, largely because they were seen as second-class citizens in a similar way to um, African-Americans. So in talking about those kinds of connections, uh, I had a few um, students in the class who, you know, whose, whose ethnic background was Italian. And that, uh, the, the, the articles that we read and the conversations that we had in class gave them space to talk to their grandparents. And in at least two cases, students told me that they got stories about this experience of, of marginalization, of othering, of being something outside of the mainstream by talking, by raising, you know, what they had read um, with, with, with grandparents who had not talked to them about that uh, previously. And that then, you know, opens this other space for a more complicated, a more nuanced sense of their own identity as white people. So um, I guess I'm just saying that I have found it very helpful to center the experience of people of color, to center these other approaches to knowledge for everybody. Everybody benefits uh, when we do that. Um, and so, yeah, just 
I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah. So I, I first met Rosemarie Harding, your dear mother, um, and you know this story, in o, uh, Omega Institute at a retreat on uh, healing the wounds of racism. And uh, when I first saw your mother, I was afraid of her <laughs> because I could sense her power. And my fear of her didn't last long because of that graciousness. There, there had been moments when I had felt that kind of power from other people and knew that they could use that power against me or to hurt me. It never dawned on me after, once she spoke, once I literally heard her voice, that this woman only meant as a teacher meant for me healing and reconciliation and hope and love and all those things that would heal my traumas and make me better able to be beneficial to community rather than a burden on a community. Wow. So the things that we're talking about in terms of teaching now are things that your mother was about all of her life. That's right. Thank you for remembering. Yes, I had, of course, you had mentioned that to me before, mm -hmm. but somehow I mm -hmm. forgot the connection. Mm -hmm. Good. So, at the, and, and I, want, I want you to repeat and say more about the notion of, because uh, Rosemary was about this, right? Miss Rosemary was about this. It was not about glossing over or not, or not, or say, or, or ignoring right. the horror, right. Right. right? The trouble. Right, right. <laughs> the woundedness, right. right? The ugliness of life. She was never about ignoring it, glossing, glossing it over. She was about how do we prepare ourselves to heal this stuff, Ooh. right? You can't ignore it and heal it at the same, <laughs> at the same time. Wow, wow, that's good, that's good. Yeah, ooh, well, um, let's see, what can I add to that that you have just so, you know, perfectly stated? Um, mm, you know, again, I guess, well, my mind is going now, actually, to my experience in the, um, the Candomblé community that I am a part of, Afro-Brazilian religious community that's um, a tradition that was created at the end of the 18th and early 19th century by enslaved Africans in, in Brazil. Um, and that gathers um, uh, like most indigenous traditions around the world from whatever continent, um, you know, is centered around an idea of reciprocity, of wholeness, of relationship between humans and the, nat the rest of the natural world that we are a part of, that we are in no way separate from um, the, the forces of, of ancestors. And as you said, those who are coming um, after us, just the interconnectedness of, of life. Um, that way of holding in tandem the, the difficulties, the challenges of life um, and our capacity, always our capacity to 
to heal them, to address them, to navigate them, to live um, with an imagination and a creativity beyond the limitations of, of, um, of the trauma is something that I experienced in that tradition and that immediately reminded me of my mother and my grandmother. Um, this, these are the, uh, um, the Tejero communities in many cases are similar to kind of storefront black churches, you know, small, often built around an extended family um, and full of the energy of the manifestation of spirit as a resource for making our way through this life that is often not easy for any of us. And yet at the heart of my experience in the Tejero communities of Candomblé, which was also the heart of my experience with my mother and with my um, immediate and extended family. Um, I know I'm, I'm gonna sound like a broken record, but the heart of it, it for me is this recognition that you are not going through life alone and that accompaniment is both spiritual, you know, whether it's Jesus or whether it's Shango and Oshun, um, it's your ancestors, it's grandmama and granddaddy and um, the other folks who have loved you in your life, who even as they cross to the other side, come back in dreams and remind you that they still love you. And it is the people who are with you right now in your day-to-day -day life um, who, again, in these communities and um, uh, church communities are, are similar in this way in terms of people just doing the day-to-day -day tasks, the labors of life that make a community function, that help it function for the benefit of everybody who's there and that need the, the, the energies and the imagination and the, the, the hand work of, of everybody who's a part of the community. Um, so this, to me, there's something really um, valuable and important about remembering um, that we make it through this life with one another. You know, none of us is in this thing by ourselves. Um, my mom spent some time studying with the, the Dalai Lama and the monks in um, Dharamsala in the 90s. And I remember when she came back, um, she was telling me about both nuns and monks who would sometimes spend years in prayer in the mountains, um, apparently isolated from other people, um, but, and just dedicated to that, um, to cultivating an energy of, of prayer for the well-being of the world, 
for the well-being of people, for the well-being of, of animals, for the well-being of the, of the natural world. And I remember thinking about that um, because she would often, you know, when, when stuff was happening in the world, she would often remind me that there are people all over this globe who are praying for the well-being of all of us. And, um, and that that's part of our responsibility uh, as human beings is to do whatever we can in what way we can. If we are prayer, praying people to do it with prayers, if we are teachers to do it with teaching, if we are writers, if we um, make things, if we are gardeners, if we are parents, whatever it is that we do, uh, to remember that we're part of this larger, inclusive um, organism, you know, this, this, this synergy of the world that, that depends on and benefits from people intending good for us, you know, praying for good for us. So. So maybe our question as we close is, who do you want to teach like? And that we encourage our listeners to, to look past, at least a little bit, the great intellectuals, the person who was the expert because of the amount of information they had. But we look to the people in our community who were gracious, teach like that, who were kind, who were oh, compassionate, yes. who were long yeah. knowers that connected their knowledges yeah. generation to generation, not just kind of flash in the pan, you know, people. Sure. Suppose we said, I want my teaching to be like wow. that. Oh, wow. That's, yes, yes. Um, well, of course, my, my mom would be absolutely... <laughs> the first and my dad right after her. Um, and, but then, you know, I think probably like most of us, if we think about it, or if we're fortunate in this way, I've had a number of people. That's right. Um, That's right. And, you know, maybe two, just mention two or three more. Um, my Valnesia Jaira, who is the Mai de Santo, the Ialorisha, the spiritual leader of the uh, ritual community that I'm a part of just watching how this woman, she's only like four years older than me, but she just administers this incredible community of, you know, probably about 200 people with all kinds of issues and concerns and conflicts. And yet she draws on a tremendous and profound ancestral wisdom that she inherited from her Yoruba ancestors and that has been cultivated in the context of that tradition for over 150 years uh, in, in Brazil. Uh, and then, you know, for millennia before that in, in West Africa. But there's something about um, just equality of graciousness, of mercy, and of, of um, kind of getting very quickly to the root of issues, you know, not letting stuff, that's one of the lessons that I'm trying to learn is not to just kind of let stuff uh, fester because she doesn't have time for that. She has so many people and so many issues that she has to kind of be very quick or relatively quick with addressing 
things, but then to do it with such mercy and such recognition that as human beings, we all falter and we all need each other to help pick each other up. But these people aren't rare. We know them, but we do not necessarily say, I want to be about those things. We do not say, let us lift them up and look to them as models, right? right? We tend to say the model is something else rather than this graciousness, this this profound compassion. So our challenge from your conversation is why why don't we bring those energies closer to us in our own classrooms? I love it. Right? How do do we say, I want to be that kind of teacher and move in those kinds of directions? That that alone would shift the planet. (laughs) And maybe it would help us to say that if we could ask who are the kinds of teachers we need for ourselves? That's right. How do we want to be taught? That's right. You know, one other person I want to mention, um, Makota Valgina Pinto. I don't know if you had a chance to meet her. Uh, She came to an SSBR meeting some years ago. But anyway, she passed um, about two years ago now. Another um, of my elders in the this, this one in the Congo-Angola tradition of Candomblé, who was just, just, she's this little lady. I mean, I'm short, I'm like five feet two. She was probably 4'11", you know, 90 pounds, but just the most powerful presence. And she taught about our connection to all life that exists on the universe, in the universe, and and the ways that human beings are are all linked to each other by these simple things that we don't even think about. They're so simple, we don't even, and so profound that we don't think about. We all breathe air. We all drink water of necessity. We all, walk on this, on the land, on the earth. We all eat from what comes up that God, that the natural forces send up out of the earth for us to eat. And our life depends on these natural, phenomenal forces. And in the tradition of Candomblé and in the tradition of, of most indigenous religions, these energies are, are sacred and are part of our understanding of ourselves as sacred beings and, part, and essential to our recognition of our interconnection with each other and with, with everything that exists, that, that um, these ways of thinking about the world, these ways of thinking about who we are as human beings and, and what hu- the, 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 the intention and the nature of, of healthy human society should be. These, these are, are extraordinary wisdoms that come from indigenous people and that I try in whatever little way I can to, to feed into whatever I'm teaching, whether it's literature, whether it's politics, whether it's um, history, 
so that my students, you know, know that they are part of a of a great and mighty life force that is, as Howard Thurman would say, is lifing. You know, the life force is doing its thing, is trying to live. And let's put our energy as human beings into helping uh, that life force to continue and to continue strong and to be available for everybody who needs it. And let's create policies, public health policies, education policies, economic policies that feed that kind of energy um, in our society so that it's easier for us to be good to each other. Mm -hmm. Dr. Rachel Harding. <laughs> I thank you, I thank you, I thank you. Thank you for inviting Ashe and amen. To our listeners, the Wabash Center is the place to find our many resources. Look on our website for our archive of podcasts, um, our archives of blogs and essays and articles, especially look for the Journal on Teaching. We also have our regranting program, which will support projects on teaching and learning and information about upcoming workshops, colloquies and seminars can be found on our website. A special thanks to podcast producer Carly Hollinsby and podcast assistant producer Rachel Mills. The music we, which we use to frame our podcast are the original compositions of our own Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 25 years is generously and exclusively funded by the Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? <laughs> <laughs>